Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would also open our hearts to understand the significance of uh, your word to our individual lives. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. We continue our series through the book of John and uh, this morning we're going to look at the subject of uh, the kind of person God uses. You know, if you are a Christian sitting here, I'm sure one of the desires of your heart is that God would use you. That you, you don't want to live a life that is a wasted life. Uh, you, you want to live a life that pleases the Lord and uh, a life that uh, is of a blessing to people around you. Uh, and uh, we find this, this man, John the Baptist, uh, he's the main focus of our uh, sermon this morning. This man, John the Baptist, was one such individual whom God used mightily. In fact, um, in Matthew 11, listen to the words of Jesus himself in terms of uh, how he viewed uh, John. If you're following the church Bible, uh, you would find this on page uh, 976. Page 976. Look at Jesus' description of John the Baptist. Uh, I'll pick it up from verse 7. So, um, background is uh, John is in prison. Some of his disciples come and ask Jesus if he is the Messiah. And uh, uh, Jesus explains to them that he is in a, in a way by showing his miracles, which point to him being the Messiah. Look at verse 7 there of Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And this is Jesus' verdict or his uh, reference, if you will, about John the Baptist, uh, like a reference letter there. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then I want to draw your attention to the first part of verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus' verdict or character reference of John the Baptist. He says, there's no one risen greater than John the Baptist. And, and what a beautiful uh, testimony that is. What a beautiful picture. And yes, verse 10 says, John was given a unique uh, role uh, by God to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And you and I are not given that exact role, but you and I are also given a similar role in the sense that John was introducing people to the Messiah we're also given that privilege of introducing the Messiah to the people. In a little different way, uh, we, we understand that. But that is the calling for every child of God as well. And uh, God used John mightily. And our desire is that God would use us also mightily. And verses, move to John chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 22 through 36. And we're going to see it's page 1065 in the church Bible. We're going to see about initially how John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and we're going to see the glory of Jesus from uh, 
verses 31 through 36. But I want to draw our attention primarily to uh, the response of John uh, to uh, his disciples coming and asking him. Uh, really, they're being troubled that uh, people are following Jesus. John starts out his ministry. Everyone is following John. Now, people are leaving John and going to Jesus. Very easy to succumb to jealousy, to bitterness, and falling into pride. But notice how beautifully John responds. John is a model for all of us. How? If you want God to use you, the non-negotiable trait that you have to have is humility. It's as simple as that. Proud people, puffed up with themselves, God cannot use. Because we're so full of ourselves, God cannot fill us. But when we empty ourselves, you'd be surprised how God can fill you and me with His mercy, with His grace. Let's look at Let's look at this portion. Verse 22. Well, last week we saw uh, Jesus having this discussion with Nicodemus. So Jesus is still in uh, Jerusalem. After these events, we find in verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. There's a twofold reason why Jesus uh, goes to the countryside. One, to spend more time with the disciples. It's like more like coaching them so that they can walk with him, learn more about uh, uh, him and uh, uh, about themselves as well. And while he was there with them, he was also doing some baptism. According to John 4.2, it was not Jesus himself who was baptizing. It was the disciples. What kind of a baptism is this here? This is obviously not Christian baptism. It would probably be more similar like the baptism John the Baptist was administering, getting people to be ready to embrace the Messiah. Verse 23, we read, Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem. Now keep in mind, before this only John was baptizing, so now Jesus' disciples are also baptizing. That is why it says John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, again an area in uh, Judea, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Uh, just as a little, it's all by the river Jordan there. Just a little footnote. Uh, the Bible is very clear. Baptism is by immersion. Why would they put the statement that because there was much water there? The reason there's much water is because it's not sprinkling or dotting the forehead. It is dunking. So, while this verse does not explicitly call out, I just want to throw this out there. If you've put your faith in Christ, if you've truly repented of your sins and turned to Christ, and if you've not been baptized by immersion, you are in disobedience. So, I will not hasten to obey your commands. That's what we read earlier in Psalm 119 verse 16. So, I would encourage you to be baptized by immersion the right way. Not your way. God's not going to accept your way. God only accepts His way. So, humble yourself and do that. And verse 24 says, This was before John was put in prison. Uh, verse 25, uh, obviously later, you know, if you know the story, John goes against... Uh, uh, Herod and um, so he puts him um, uh, in jail so obviously these events happened before that verse 25 an argument developed between some of John's disciples and uh, a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing now it's, it's a very um, uh, interesting statement that uh, John the Apostle records for us uh, what exactly is this argument that is going on we're, we're not given very clear information here but most likely John is 
doing a baptism. So is Jesus. And then the Jews by now, you know, are so deeply soaked into a lot of the ceremonial washings and so forth. It is almost like John the Baptist was saying, look, entrance is into the kingdom is simple. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Embrace the Messiah. So it's, it's, it could be almost like, you know, what about all the ceremonial washings? Was that the question that was arising? Or this looks like more of someone who's more pro-Jesus uh, could be uh, that because it's, it's an argument between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew. So maybe this Jew was maybe leaning a little more towards Jesus' baptism or what we were not told very clearly. But whatever it is, there's an argument that is arising. So John's disciples, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man. Now you can see there's, there's a little animosity here. They're not even calling Jesus. People knew who, who his name was. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. They forgot. People are still coming to John the Baptist. But notice, this is like everybody is going to him. What do you think their spirit here is? Jealousy. It's pretty clear here. Notice, they also say this, the one you testified about. And what did John testify about Jesus? He said, my role is to point people to Him. He is the Messiah. If they really got that message, they would be joyful. In fact, why are people still coming to us? They should be going to Him. They didn't get the message. All they saw was numbers. Numbers. We're losing people. We're losing the crowd. Everyone's going there. See, it's very easy for us to be consumed by envy and jealousy, is it not? So easy. So easy. People are leaving. Success is going away. It could be in terms of people. Here the context is clearly about people. But it could be any, any other sense also. And when you are consumed with envy, bitterness, comparing yourself with others, God cannot use you. God cannot and God will not. God will not. Here's a perfect opportunity for John. You could get bitter. Because it's not he who's bringing this up. People around him. And sometimes you've got to be cautious. You yourself might not give, give in to jealousy or envy. But the people around you can fuel that in you. It's very easy for John to say, Yeah, yeah man, I've worked all these years. Uh, look how I lived from my birth. You know, as a strict Nazarene. Cutting myself away from all earthly things and all that. Look what I got from my work. Everyone's leaving. There's nothing, no success here be very easy. If John wanted to assert himself, now would have been the time. But notice his response. What a beautiful response. See, a humble person recognizes God is sovereign over every single situation on our lives. Look at verse 27. It's displayed here. John says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. See? John recognizes his role. Look, I can only have what God in His sovereignty has given to me. I'm not going to fight for it. I'm not going to hold it with a tight fist. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm just going to live with an open hand. Whoever God gives, I'll serve. If God takes, I'm happy because these people are actually going to Jesus. It's not like they're going down to a quote-unquote wrong religion or something like that. They're getting more closer to Jesus. And that is exactly my 
role to get people to be more close to Jesus. John understood God is sovereign. God is the one who orchestrates everything. What a beautiful statement. The person can receive only what is given them from heaven. That's from top down. Mark of great humility. He's, he's joyful here. He's joyful that people are getting more closer to Christ. He is joyful that people are blessed. He is not a victim of bitterness or of misery. Very important for us to understand. C.S. Lewis once said, The Christian faith calls for us to play great parts without pride and small parts without shame. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, when God gives us what we call as a big task, we shouldn't be puffed up. And when it's just picking up the trash for God's glory, don't feel ashamed. Whether you eat or drink, Bible says, do it all for the glory of God. As mundane as it gets. That sip of water that you take, do it for the glory of God, he says. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. John goes on to help his people now. He says, look, verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. Earlier in verse 26, you told me I testified about him, but what exactly did I testify? This is what I testified. I am not the Messiah, but what am I? We, we saw earlier in John 1, I am just a voice in the wilderness. Just a voice. A voice is not even seen. It's only heard. That's what I am, John says. I am just a voice. I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And then he brings this Old Testament marriage picture here, which hoping the disciples will understand even better. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was always seen as like the husband and Israel was seen as the bride. Same thing even in the New Testament. Jesus is the husband and the church is the bride. There's that marriage picture. So John the Baptist uses that which is Familiar to them, the language that is familiar to them and teaches them, look, I'm like the best man. The best man does not go after the bride. The best man makes sure the groom and the bride unite together. In fact, there was a law during that time. A best man could not ever marry his friend's wife. Even if that friend died. It was like a law. So they would have understood I'm not out for the people. My point is to get the people, the bride in plurality, all the uh, believers, uh, to get them to him. That's my role. He says, I want to guard it because the, the, the person who is saying here, uh, the friend, the friend would arrange everything to me. In fact, uh, one, uh, one historical piece of evidence also says that the best man would even uh, guard the bridal chamber. That, that's how serious the best man took the role to make sure that the joy is fulfilled mainly for the uh, groom and the bride. That was his role. And John says, that's my role. I want the Messiah. I want Jesus and his people to come together. I'm just a facilitator. I'm just a facilitator. I'm just the means. Just the voice. He says, that's who I am. And then he makes this marvelous statement. He must become greater. I must become less. What a beautiful 
beautiful statement there. It's a divine necessity, he says. It's actually in the present tense. He must keep on becoming greater or increasing, as other translations might put it. And I must, and I would say we must, keep on becoming less or decreasing. In other words, what he's saying simply is this. Christians must always keep on seeking to be obscure. Jesus must be made more and more. He must be made much in our lives. That's, that's the idea that he's stating here. It's very important for us to understand this. Focus is not about ourselves. Through our lips, through our lives, Jesus must be seen bigger and bigger and bigger. That is John's desire. And that's the idea. Look at the humility of John. Why God used him? Because of this. He recognizes God is sovereign. I just play my role. And humility recognizes that he must keep on increasing, not us. I'm not talking about, you know, just saying in words that it's all for the glory of Christ, it's all about him. But really in our hearts, are we really humble people? Do we rejoice when others have what we don't have? Do we rejoice when even what we have is taken away from us? Do we rejoice or do we stay in misery and get bitter against God? John the Baptist did not get bitter against God. He was joyful because he recognized if this is the way God gets glory, I'm all for it. My joy is complete. My joy is full. That's why God uses people like that. Story is told about a two years ago. I read that uh, it happened sometime in 2010 or so. I might have shared this with you folks. There was this lady, a uh, single lady who had uh, committed her life to Christ and uh, um, wanted to live for live for Jesus, and uh, was in California, and she felt the call to go to Iraq. Uh, and uh, obviously, you know the challenges in Iraq, but she wanted to go testify to the uh, people about the love of Jesus. So against uh, everyone who advised her to not to go, she sold her home, quit her job, she funded herself, and she went there. And um, she went there and she started ministering, and um, uh, then she sent a letter to her pastor. Uh, she was part of a Baptist church, if I'm not mistaken. She sent a letter to the pastor and said, do not open this and read this uh, until if something happens to me and I die. And so um, uh, the pastor kept it and uh, she was killed by uh, uh, people there. And um, at her funeral, uh, uh, the, the pastor read the letter. And uh, she said uh, the, these two words. Why she left, gave up everything and went there. She said uh, uh, these, these few words. His glory, my reward. That's all she put me. His glory, my reward. John the Baptist is exactly that. His glory, my reward. Because John paid with his life. He kept proclaiming the truth. He kept on hammering about sin. And he had his, literally his head cut off. John knew the price he would pay. But if you were to ask John, John, is it worth it? He would say, His glory, my reward. Why, John? Why? 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 Why is his glory all-consuming? 
What's your motivation? Verses 31 through 36. That's my motivation, John would say. Why should Jesus become greater? Because of this. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above, that is Jesus, is above all. The one who is from the earth, in context that is John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Twice he says that in one verse. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is above all. We are of the earth. Dust. Here today, gone tomorrow. He testifies, he says about Jesus, to what he has seen and heard because he comes from heaven. But no one accepts his testimony. People are rejecting Jesus then. People still reject Jesus now. Maybe you are one of those rejecters too. But, he says, verse 33, whoever has accepted it or accepted his word and turned to him in faith has certified that God is truthful. Meaning that this God is a God of truth. He's sending his message through him and whoever has accepted it, it says, God, I believe you. Because at the end of the day, faith is saying God is to be trusted. God is true. Unbelief says, God is not, my way is better. So when we follow the truth, when we submit to God's word, we're saying, God, you are a God of truth. That's what you've said about yourself. I confess the same through my mouth and through my actions. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. Now this uh, set of Jewish writings called the Talmud. And the Talmud writes, this was even almost 100-200 years before the New, New Testament times. It was written that when God sent prophets, He would give the Holy Spirit with a limitation. A limitation meaning whatever the prophet was called to do, the Spirit was given according to that measure. But when it came to the Son, He gave the Spirit without measure and from that point on, we receive the Holy Spirit also without measure. Is that what John is having in mind? We don't know. But one thing that is clear is this. The relationship between the Father and the Son is of deep love. So the Father pours out His Spirit to the Son without limit. Again, another point of the Messiah, because they would know. In the Old Testament believers here, they would know that the Messiah would be anointed with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Again and again, He's driving people to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Then he says, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Again, that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is the ruler. That is why He must become greater and we must become lesser. Both of us cannot become greater at the same time. You cannot exalt Jesus and exalt self. One or the other has to give in. And the right thing to give in is ourselves. Because therein lies true joy. When we pursue a downward growth, therein is true joy. When you want things for yourself, to exalt yourself, you will not find joy. You will not. I mean, real lasting joy. There will be that sense of insecurity. You'll always feel like, I'm never good enough. I'm never good enough. i got to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. Never have even a peaceful night of rest. But when you humble yourself and surrender to Jesus, say, you must increase. Do whatever you want to do with my life. It's yours. You created me. You own me. I call you as my Lord, which means I'm your slave. You Lord, me Lord, don't go hand in hand. You Lord, me slave. It's as simple as that. And then comes this personal application for you and me. 
whoever believes in the Son has eternal life because it is the Son who is from above and it is the Son who speaks the word of God and it is the Son who will be our substitute as we saw last week. He was the one that paid the full price for our sins and He is the only one who can give everlasting life. When we put our trust in Him, when we completely surrender ourselves to Him, the belief is not just an intellectual one. It involves the whole being. We surrender. That's what the idea is. You have eternal life. And this is not future tense. This is now, right now, when you put your faith in Christ, you have everlasting life. Right now, you have it. You will experience it to the fullest in the future. Everlasting life is a present reality. But the opposite also is a present reality. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. That's future. For God's wrath abides or remains on them. Meaning that right now, God's wrath, you are in a present state of God's wrath. And you will experience that to the fullest when you will know that you don't have life at all in the future when Jesus comes. So when Jesus comes, you will either experience fullness of salvation or fullness of condemnation. You are only tasting a sample of both. So, the question arises for you and me. Are we willing to humble ourselves and put our faith in this Messiah, in this Lamb of God, this Savior who came with such deep love and gave His life for you and me and wants us to have the joy and privilege of being used by Him. Folks, don't think we have anything to offer to God. We got nothing to offer to God except our sins. And we offer that to Him continually. Sadly, we do that. But He says, I will take your messes. Come with me with all your mess, with everything. Don't hold back. I already know your mess. Why are you hiding from me? Why do you need to be afraid? I know it. But I'm inviting you. Come and see what I will do with your life. It's a beautiful offer. You don't want to reject this offer. Why would you want to reject this offer? God says, I want to use you. I want to really use you, not abuse you. I want to use you. But humble yourself. It's got to be my way. I'm sovereign over your life. Not your way. God is not our co-pilot. That's a blasphemous statement. God is our co-pilot. We're letting God sit on our side. He is Lord. He says, I want to use you. We're expendable. All of us are expendable. We need to understand, but when we give ourselves into jealousy and bitterness, we cannot be used by God. All of God's children face these problems always. People face this challenge. Moses, in Numbers 11, had the same problem. People came and told Moses, Moses, there's a lot of people prophesying. You can read that later when you go home. Numbers 11 verses 26 and following. And Moses says, you guys getting jealous about it? I hope more people do that. In fact, everybody does that, he says. That's why the Bible records Moses was a very humble man. Apostle Paul in jail. Philippians 1, same thing. Some people were preaching. They were preaching the right gospel, but with wrong motives. Philippians 1. He says, I don't care about the motives. As long as Christ is preached, Christ is exalted, I'm good with that. 
he's not saying it's okay when people preach the wrong gospel because if you go to Philippians 3, he calls the false preachers as dogs. It's not very friendly terms. So he's talking about when people are preaching the gospel, rejoice. People are not preaching the gospel, you can't rejoice. Or nor can you just say, you know, that's okay. No, that's not okay. Then we disobey God by not talking against what is error. So we're not talking about that form of humility, which is really self-exaltation because you don't want to stand for the truth. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is that the, the desire that, hey, people are getting closer to Christ, I'm happy. I don't need to form a crowd around myself. That's not the objective. John had that kind of a attitude. It's interesting, even when he was in the womb, when Mary goes to see Elizabeth, the baby leaped in the womb. It's like, you know, here's the Messiah, I'm rejoicing. John's focus always was to promote the Messiah. And that should be our focus. As believers, we've lived a life of sin before we came to Christ. Why do we want to continue that anymore? We don't need to. We can say, Lord, I don't want to anymore. I want to serve you. Like William Carey, who said this, said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. That was his desire. And that should be our desire as well. I want to close with reading Isaiah chapter 50, just to motivate you and me. Because the ultimate picture of humility is Jesus Christ himself. Not John, not Paul, not Moses, not Carrie, not that lady from Iraq, not C.S. Lewis, none of them. Because the ultimate model is the sovereign Lord himself. Isaiah chapter 50, it's page 732 in the church Bible. It, it's, this is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. I'm just going to read from verses 5 through 7. Actually, I'm going to read beyond that. Verse 5, the, it's just like Jesus speaking. Uh, the Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Needless to say, all of that was fulfilled in Christ. But notice, here's, here's the Messiah, the King Himself, saying, I have not turned away from giving my back to those who beat me, and many beat Him. I did not turn my cheeks from those who pulled out my beard. That happened. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. That happened. Because when a person, would, when they would be carrying the cross and going, the crowd will also be spitting on them. It's not just the spitting at the time when they nail him. The spitting goes on throughout that way as he walks and goes because a person who was carrying a cross was cursed by God. So they were spitting. All this Jesus went through. He says, I did not hide my face. I did not do it privately. I did it publicly. Why? Why? Because this was God's will for me. And I trusted in God. Verse 7, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Yes, people might say, you put on that cross, what a disgrace. But he's got a bigger picture there. And that's what he wants you and me to have. It's not about disgrace, this side of heaven. It's the glory of that side, I mean, this side of life. It's the glory beyond that should motivate us to say, what is this? This disgrace is a pathway for glory. This suffering 
that's supposed to pull me down is actually a means through which I want to grab this suffering and use it as a tool to gain that glory. That's, that's the idea. So, he says, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. Luke records this in Luke 9.52. He sets his face like flint as he goes towards Jerusalem. He was so focused on that cross. You could say, Jesus was so focused on being abused and insulted. Because that was God's will for him. And that's the, the will for you and me. God, whatever path you've laid out for me, I don't know what path. We sang earlier, make thou my pathway plain. This is the pathway, the narrow road that Jesus wants you and me to walk. With that focus, whatever happens, I know I have eternal life. I will experience that to the fullest in the future. I don't want to give up Jesus for the sake of some petty recognition by the world. The same world that recognizes me today will turn around and mock me tomorrow. I don't want to live up to their standards and to be accepted by people. I'm already accepted because of the blood of Christ. That's good enough. That should be our idea. And then it goes on verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Second time again we read that. It's the sovereign Lord who helps me. They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Yes, unbelievers will be gone. Everlasting doom, everlasting fire. But, sovereign Lord helps me. Then verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? This is an application for you and me. You fear the Lord? You obey the voice of Jesus? Then, let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Those who choose to reject Jesus, picture as you will lie down in your torment. You continue to live your sinful life. This will be your end. But, you humble yourself and put your trust in Jesus you will experience eternal life. Maybe you are going through situations where things are not going the way you would like for it to go. Things are very difficult. Seems like you have no answers to your problems. Look at verse 10. You are walking in the dark. You have no light. But this is the command. Trust in the name of your Lord and rely on Him. Trust in Him. With all your heart, trust in Him. Don't lean on your own understanding. So that's the idea. You want God to use you follow the footsteps of all of God's people but more so the path of the Messiah himself let's pray together Lord we do recognize that uh, it's easier said than done but if you've commanded us to be humble then it is possible and the Bible makes it abundantly clear that you want us to be used by you you delight in using weak vessels. And if we are honest with ourselves, Lord, we also feel a great joy when you use us, even for the littlest of things. And if we are honest with ourselves and look back at our lives, those things that we pursued, we fought about with our spouses, with our children, with our neighbors, in the workplace, because of our pride, never really brought us great joy. Oh, it might have given us some temporary pleasure and satisfaction, but in the long run, it just hurt us so much. And in some cases, we're even reaping those consequences even now. 
That's what pride does, Lord. Because everyone proud in heart is detestable to you. Proverbs 16.5 reminds us so clearly. And you said repeatedly in your earthly ministry, Lord Jesus, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that exaltation for us will come, not now, but when we leave this earth and come and stay with you. So until then, help us to walk in that beautiful narrow path, that path where you are always with us. Sovereign Lord is always there to help me. And if any here, Lord, is still on that broad road, maybe they have hardened their heart, I just pray, Lord, that you would help them to see it's never too late. Even now, Lord, you're not scolding them, but you're lovingly inviting them. Come to me. Stop fighting. Come to me. I will give you peace. I will give you joy. Turn your life over to me. Lord, draw them to yourself. Cause in them a spirit that desires to yield to you, to repent of their sins and turn to you and see the beautiful Christ on that cross, but no longer is on that cross, died, rose again, ascended, and is there in heaven, continuing to give forgiveness to those who will turn to him. Please do that work. For your name's sake, Lord Jesus, I ask. Amen.